Hi, my name is Ada Yee, and I'm a fifth-year graduate student in Lu Chen's lab here at Stanford. And I'm David Lipton, a fifth-year graduate student in Kang Shen's lab here at Stanford. And welcome to the third season of NeuroTuck, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. Each week, the Stanford Neuroscience Institutes, or SNI, invites a prominent scientist to come to campus and share their most recent work with the Stanford community. For professors and a few students each week, this is also an opportunity to chat casually with these scientists one-on-one. -on -one. Our goal with this program is to open that experience up to the broader neuroscience community. We hope the conversation gives you some insight into the speaker's personality and provides a platform for the kind of stories of science which are of interest to us but are often left out of more formal papers or presentations. This week, our guest is James Surmeyer, a professor and chair of the Department of Physiology at Northwestern University. Thank you for speaking with us today, Professor Surmeyer. Oh, it's my pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and when you decided you wanted to become a scientist? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I, I grew up in southwestern Idaho. My family are farmers there. And I went to undergraduate school at the University of Idaho and studied mathematics and uh, English and psychology and really had no particular interest in biology. I actually took only one undergraduate class in biology, and that was just to meet the graduation requirements of the arts and sciences college. And uh, went to graduate school in mathematics and was pursuing a PhD in mathematics. And I got interested in uh, neural network modeling. And one of the things that was dissatisfying about the models is they weren't very well constrained by biological fact. They were more fancy than, than anything else. And so I decided to go to the University of Washington and, and try and learn something about neurophysiology to constrain the models. And I never looked back. I got totally enthralled with neurophysiology and decided to go ahead and pursue my PhD there. Was it the experiments that you really loved or what, what was it that you loved so much? I got excited about trying to understand how the brain worked. Mm. I think that I had not appreciated the challenges of, of trying to understand how the brain worked or, or how neural circuitry contributed to consciousness and got excited about trying to contribute to our understanding about how those two things were linked. That is how neural circuitry led to all of the, the richness of our personal experience, right? So, I, obviously, I had to narrow my focus just a little bit from that broader goal <laughs> yeah. as I went along, but, but that was basically what, what motivated me to study neuroscience at that point, is the excitement about uh, understanding how neural activity leads to awareness and sensation. Do you think that your initial interest in more theoretical approaches has helped in your current interest in the more biological mechanisms? One of the things that most biologists lack is a good understanding of quantitative approaches to describing phenomena. So the, the mathematical background that I had, I think, has served me very well. Most of what we've done over the last goodness, 25, 30 years, is quantitative, is physical, mathematical modeling has been a big part of, of what we've done. And I think it's a, it's a very important tool for understanding. I mean, if you can describe something quantitatively and have it mimic the naturally occurring behavior, you understand it well, whereas using words to describe it or describe the correlation or connection between the mechanisms you're studying and a, a a very complex phenomena are often not very satisfying and not accurate, actually. So mathematical approaches, I think, are underappreciated for their value in understanding complex phenomena. 
So as you said, you got your PhD from the University of Washington, and then you went on to do a postdoc in Stephen Katai's lab at the University of Tennessee. And so there you were studying the role of dopaminergic neurons in the striatum. At that time, the prevailing hypothesis was that dopamine function is modulated partly by segregating D1 and D2 dopamine receptors between the two major output pathways of the striatum, such that neurons that go to the substantia nigra only express D1 receptors, and neurons going to the globus pallidus would only have D2 receptors. And when you were in the Katai lab, you did actually publish a paper that was arguing that this is not true and the segregation isn't that strict, that each pathway has expression of both types of receptor. And so this was a big debate at the time. And eventually the debate came around to including, you know, um, evidence from your own work showing that, that there is segregation of these pathways. But maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this debate. Right. I think this is one of the great examples, at least in my career, of how science should work. Right. So in the early 90s, the segregation hypothesis was advanced by uh, Chip Gerfin and a, a number of other people, Malin DeLong and others, based largely upon in situ hybridization studies of D1 and D2 receptors. And every technique has got its strengths and weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses of the in situ hybridization technique is good localization. And you, it was very difficult to look carefully and quantitatively at co-localization of D1 and D2 receptors using that approach. Now, those of us in the field who were not anatomically oriented, but were physiologically oriented, were, were recording from uh, striatal neurons and applying D1 and D2 receptor agonists, invariably saw responses in individual cells to both classes of drugs, that is to D1 agonists or to D2 two agonists. The physiologists would sit at the back of the room and listen to these talks by the anatomists, claiming there was this very strict segregation. And we would all look at each other and shake our heads and say, can't be, can't be, because we all have the same experience. So we were struggling with ways of trying to definitively sort out the differences. Now, one of the problems with the striatum is that there's a complex circuitry there are more cell types than just direct and indirect pathway neurons, these principal spiny neurons that express dopamine receptors. And so one of the possibilities was that our observation that D1 and D2 agonists had effects on individual cells could be because some of the effects were direct, mediated by a receptor that was expressed by that cell, and some of the effects were mediated by the circuitry, that is, we were affecting some synaptically coupled cell, some distance away, and that that was influencing the cell that we saw, we were recording from, and as a consequence, we would see mixed effects of D1 and D2 receptor agonists. Mm -hmm. But the other possibility, of course, was that the receptors were just co-expressed, and that was the most parsimonious hypothesis. So serendipity plays a role in a lot of what goes on in science, and so at that time, I went and, and gave a seminar at the University of Pennsylvania. And there was a fellow there by the name of Jim Eberwine who was doing something that no one had done before. And that is he was trying to amplify messenger RNA from individual neurons, individual cells. And I thought, ah, this is the perfect technique for sorting this whole issue out. There's not that same problem with in situ where you have to kind of look for a secondary marker to determine whether or not two things are expressed by the same cell. We can actually, in an individual cell, amplify the mRNA and then ask the question, 
is D1 receptor and D2 receptor mRNA expressed. So in 1992, we published a paper in PNS, which was the very first paper combining functional analysis, that is physiological analysis, with this new single-cell mRNA amplification technique. Now, as is often the case with new techniques, sometimes there are unforeseen technical problems. And there were, were several with this approach. So we decided to go ahead and publish the results that we had in 1992. And it did cause a lot of controversy and discussion. And the physiologists lined up on our side and the anatomists lined up on the other side. And we had a lot of both published debates about this, as well as uh, meetings that were focused on the, on the topic. And there really wasn't any good resolution because there was no explanation for each group's observations. And so bottom line was that I decided that the only way for us to resolve this, I wanted to resolve it. I, I mean, I had a great deal of faith in the anatomist was to do the experiments myself. So we, in my lab in Tennessee, the original molecular biology was done at the University of Pennsylvania. We brought up the, a single-cell RT-PCR amplification approach, uh, which is a little bit different than what was published initially. But it was one that we, we felt confident in and one that we could control. So in 1996, we published a paper in the Journal of Neuroscience, which basically said the segregation hypothesis was correct. That is that D1 receptors are expressed primarily by direct pathway neurons, that is neurons that project to the substantia nigra, and indirect pathway neurons express primarily D2 receptors, those are the cells which project to the globus pallidus. But there also was lower level expression of other members of the dopamine receptor class. So for example, D1 receptors uh, co-expressed a D3 receptor, which to a pharmacologist would look like a D2 class receptor. So there was co-localization of D1 and D2 class receptors in the direct pathway. It just wasn't D1 and D2, it was D1 and D3. In the indirect pathway, there also was co-localization of D2 and D5 receptors. D5 receptors, again, have a pharmacological profile in a coupling, second messenger coupling, which is very similar to D1 receptors. So the story ended up being a bit more complicated than we had anticipated, but it, it showed how it was that physiologists could see effects of both D1 and D2 receptor agonists in the same cell, and people looking at in situ hybridization would see segregation of D1 and D2 class mRNA. They didn't ever look at D3 or D4 or D5, at least not uh, as carefully because the expression levels for those receptors was considerably lower. So I think at that point, it essentially reconciled the anatomical and the physiological data sets pretty well. And, and then after that, back transgenics came out. And the back transgenics showed, again, with D1 receptor-driven GFP expression, segregation in the direct pathway, and with D2 receptor-driven GFP expression, segregation in the indirect pathway. So it I think it confirmed the initial anatomical results, our results in 96, and put everyone pretty much at ease, although there's still debate about this, and there's still questions about the role of the striatal circuitry 
in mediating some of these effects because almost all of the interneurons co-express D1 and D2 class receptors. The best example of that are cholinergic interneurons, which control both direct and indirect pathway neurons. They co-express D2 and D5 receptors. So there is co-localization of D1 and D2 class receptors, but largely segregation of D1 and D2 receptors in direct and indirect pathway neurons. You said at the very beginning of this story that this is how you feel science should work. Well, what did you mean exactly by that? Right. So often when you have observations that disagree or are not consistent with a prevailing theory, you don't speak up. Yeah. You don't voice your concerns and try and reconcile your results or resolve your differences with somebody else. I mean, this is certainly the case in the early 90s with the physiologists. They basically weren't uh, aggressive about pushing the inconsistencies of the prevailing model with their data sets. So what science should do is those concerns should be openly voiced, in my view, and then we should work to try and resolve them. Not just simply go off to our separate corners and have our own theories, but to, to talk to one another and to try and figure out a way in which we can reconcile both data sets. I think that's exactly what happened. We pushed the technological boundaries of single-cell mRNA amplification and kept after that to try and understand the basis for the difference, how it was the people doing in-situ hybridization were seeing the things that they were seeing, and at the same time explain how it was that when we did a physiological experiment, we saw something different. And so I think that in the end, we, we came up with an explanation, but it took a long time. It took uh, at least three, four years of hard work and a new technological innovation for us to be able to reconcile things. And so now, I mean, there's not much debate about it. Both physiologists and anatomists agree, at least on this point, because we worked to find an explanation that embraced both or accounted for both data sets. So that's what the way science should work. And I think that we should work towards incorporating as much data into our theories as possible and to talk to people who've got approaches that are different from our own. Do you think the lack of crosstalk is usually what prevents this? I think that's one of the things that prevents it. I think that we often are comfortable within our own space, right? And don't try and, and reach beyond our area, our sort of comfort zone. The other thing that happens is that Sometimes we simply retreat to the position that we're right and they're wrong, rather than try and, and understand how a result that's different from our own could have arisen. You know, I think this is one of the, the major issues in science these days. I mean, there's a lot of concern about the lack of replication of scientific results. Pharmaceutical companies, for example, look at academics with a great deal of distrust because they claim that you know, maybe 25% of what's published can be reproduced. I have a lot more faith in academics than that. I think that uh, often that lack of reproducibility stems from a difference in experimental condition or approach that is not fleshed out, is not well understood. And sometimes those differences in experimental condition are important to understanding a, the biological phenomenon. So we should strive to try and understand data sets that are discrepant and with our own. And, and you know, the other thing is that you don't get any credit these days for reproducing somebody else's data. Yeah. And you're never going to get a paper in science or nature that says, oh yeah, and we found the same thing. 
You need to know what's reproducible, what's not, and why. The, the other thing that's important about this that I, I think is, is really critical is that we all love our own ideas, right? We get fascinated by them and sometimes hold them too close to our breast. And I think that one of the critical things about science is that our ideas are not us. They're just ideas. And they're ideas that should be tested. And if they're false or not supported by the data, we let go of them. And all too often, I think as scientists, we hold too tightly to our ideas. We identify ourselves with those ideas. And if somehow a theory that we've advanced is out to be false, we take it personally. We shouldn't ever take it personally. That's the way science has to work. That's a great approach to science of really viewing yourself as part of a team of individuals pursuing truth. Exactly. So that's a more eloquent way of stating what I tried yeah. to do. We're data-driven. <laughs> yeah. mm. um, so moving on, work from your lab and others has shown that dopamine D1 receptor signaling enhances dendritic excitability and glutamatergic signaling in the substantia nigra, whereas D2 receptor signaling exerts the opposite effect downstream in the striatum. So first, can you give us a brief overview, if it is possible, to simplify the striatal circuit? Yeah, so, I mean, the simplest way of thinking about the striatum is that there are two output pathways. The direct pathway is often referred to as the go pathway, meaning that when neurons in that pathway are active, it leads to action selection, to movement, whereas when the indirect pathway is active animals don't go, they suppress movement. So that's often called the no-go pathway. So dopamine differentially modulates those two pathways. Dopamine acting through D1 receptors stimulates the go pathway and at the same time suppresses the no-go pathway. Right? So you actively do something and suppress unwanted or competing actions. Whereas when dopamine levels fall, uh -huh. indirect pathway gets disinhibited, its activity rises, and the direct pathway activity falls, that, that leads to a bias towards inaction or, or no activity. So in diseases like Parkinson's disease, where dopamine cells are lost and striatal levels of dopamine fall, the no-go pathway, the indirect pathway, which is normally held in check by D2 receptor signaling, becomes disinhibited, becomes hyperactive, and it leads to in principle, the suppression of all actions. So the sort of core motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease are the paucity of movement, hypoactivity, rigidity. You don't move. You don't act because the indirect pathway is hyperactive. The direct pathway is hypoactive or underactive because of loss of that complementary stimulation of D1 and D2 receptors. And so as you're saying, in Parkinson's disease, you get this loss of dopaminergic tone. And so primarily, or at least what people have thought, is that this is caused by loss of the neurons in the substantia nigra, which is just one of the targets of the striatum. But actually, some research has come out showing that um, also there's a loss of neurons in the pallidum, which also contribute to the disease. And so actually, your lab published some of the first evidence, uh, I guess in 2006, that there's actually a decrease in the spines and glutamatergic synapses onto uh, the neurons of the pallidum. And so you also provided some explanation for uh, why this is. Can you talk about those findings? Okay, so the core motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease, uh, the bradykinesia, the rigidity, are caused by the death of dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra, which innervate the striatum. Mm -hmm. 
so when dopamine levels in the striatum fall, it leads to this imbalance in the activity of the direct and indirect pathway neurons that I talked about. That is that indirect pathway neurons become hyperactive. They're being disinhibited because now D2 receptors are not working to keep them in check. And D1 receptors are not being stimulated, which normally boost the activity of the GO pathway, the direct pathway. So what happens then, though, is that neural circuitry always adapts. Something called homeostatic plasticity is characteristic, I think, of all neurons that have been studied in any depth. So neurons always have a comfort zone of spiking. They like to spike at a certain rate. Some neurons, like spiny neurons, projection neurons, like to spike at very low rates, maybe a few hertz. Whereas other neurons, like globus pallidus neurons or substantia nigra pars reticulata neurons, may spike at 90 hertz. That's where they want to be. When they're spiking in that rate, they're doing their job. Okay? So if you push them out of that comfort zone, they'll try and adapt. There are two types of homeostatic plasticity that have been described. One is an intrinsic form of homeostatic plasticity where the ion channels governing spike generation and repetitive activity will change in a way that pushes the cell back into its comfort zone. The other way that the cells can exhibit homeostatic plasticity is by changing their synaptic connectivity. So they can either add glutamatergic synapses or shed glutamatergic synapses. So, for example, they probably also can change their GABAergic input as well. So in the striatum, when you lose dopamine, the indirect pathway neurons, the no-go neurons, which are suppressing all the activity and lead to the symptoms of the disease, they are pushed out of their comfort zone. They're spiking too fast. So what they try and do is they try and bring their activity back into that, that comfort zone. So if you're spiking too fast, how can you lower your discharge rate? Well, for a spiny neuron, which is not autonomously active, the only way it can do that is either by lowering its in intrinsic excitability, which it does, mm -hmm. but the other way is to get rid of glutamatergic excitatory synapses, and that's okay. the other thing that it does. So what we described in, I think, the 07 paper was a form of synaptic homeostatic plasticity. Mm -hmm. That is, the striatum was responding to the loss of dopamine. So that's part of... The, the network adaptation that takes place in Parkinson's disease. It's a consequence of the loss of dopaminergic neurons, but is not a cause of the loss of dopaminergic so neurons. So basically these presynaptic neurons you're saying in the striatum, MSNs that normally target the pallidum, for example, are detecting something that's going on downstream of them and are adjusting for that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah well, they're detecting the change in dopamine yes. concentration okay. in the striatum. So dopamine levels fall, they detect that. Yeah. That leads to a reduction in D2 receptor activity, which makes them hyper-excitable. So they start spiking too fast. Mm -hmm. So in response to that, they begin to adapt over a course of days and weeks mm -hmm. to try and bring their activity back into a normal range. Now, ultimately, it's not successful. I think in the early stages of Parkinson's disease, where the loss of dopamine is partial, in fact, this is one of the mechanisms that keeps us symptom-free. This is one of the interesting characteristics of Parkinson's disease is that you need to lose maybe 50% of your dopaminergic neurons before you ever manifest any symptoms. 
which is pretty astonishing. Yeah. If you think about it, and in almost every other neural pathway, sensory pathway, for example, or in a motor pathway, if I lose 50% of my motor cortex, you will see motor consequences. But in this pathway, you can lose 50% of the neurons and you still don't have any obvious symptoms. Part of that, I think, is because it's a paracrine hormone system and point-to-point connections are not so important. But the other part of it is the network is adapting to keep its activity, keep its function normal in spite of the fact dopamine levels are falling. And at some point, those adaptive mechanisms, that homeostatic plasticity fails. Mm -hmm. And it's at that point that all of a sudden symptoms begin to emerge. The the network begins to malfunction in a way that that leads to the motor symptoms. Do you think that further modulation of these homeostatic plasticity mechanisms could serve as a potential therapeutic target for when symptoms do appear? It's possible One of the things we don't understand very well is how the homeostatic mechanisms interact with current symptomatic therapies. So one of the possibilities is that these homeostatic mechanisms interact with symptomatic therapies to produce unwanted side effects. For example, in early stage Parkinson's disease, the principal strategy is to try and boost the production of dopamine by the remaining dopaminergic neurons. Mm -hmm. You give precursor for dopamine, levodopa. As the disease progresses, the levodopa treatment leads to large fluctuations in the concentration of dopamine within the striatum. It's entirely possible that those fluctuations are interacting with homeostatic mechanisms, which control synaptic connectivity and intrinsic excitability to produce things that are called um, dyskinesias, that is unwanted movements. Mm -hmm. But the the bottom line is that we're really at a very early stage in understanding how homeostatic plasticity works in the striatum, how it affects network function, and, and how it might interact with symptomatic therapies. So I think that it remains to be seen. It's something that I think should be pursued actively by graduate students and postdocs at Stanford. (laughs) So continuing this line of inquiry further, in a follow-up paper published in 2007, you show that the dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra are unusually reliant upon uh, particular L-type calcium channels to drive their maintained rhythmic pacemaking. So the dysregulation of these calcium channels are driving the pathogenesis of this disease. Is that correct? It's not dysregulation of the calcium channels. The calcium channels are working just fine. Uh, but I think that they do drive the genesis. So this is actually what I'm going to talk about at the lecture next week. This is one of the most exciting things that we have done, certainly in my career. And it's a great example of how basic science can be translated, actually in some cases very quickly, into clinical practice. So the, the work that was started about 2005, the, the first published report was in Nature in 2007, is led to first a phase two and then a phase three clinical trial, which is starting this year with a drug called Isratapine. Uh-huh. So this is a, an efficacy clinical trial, which is going to determine whether or not this drug slows the progression of Parkinson's disease. So I have to emphasize that there's nothing, no drug that is known to slow the progression of the disease. Yeah. And this is a huge unmet medical need, healthcare need. And this patient population, I mean, there are over a million people in the United States that have got 
Parkinson's disease, there are many, many worldwide, and this number is growing because the principal risk factor in Parkinson's disease is age, and the population is aging. Life expectancy is steadily increasing, and so the, the percentage of the population above the age of 60 is increasing. So this is going to create a huge healthcare burden for your generation yeah. because it's an extraordinarily expensive disease because it's very disabling. So, okay, so let's go back. So one of the basic features of Parkinson's disease is that there are a really very small subset of neurons in the brain that are affected by the disease through the mid-stages of the disease. That is, there may be less than a tenth of a percent of the neurons in the brain show any signs of pathology. The pathology is distributed in some very discrete loci, and yeah. one of them is the substantia nigra. So, one of the questions that had been bouncing around for a very long period of time is why those neurons? Why not cortical pyramidal cells? Why not spiny neurons in the stridum? Why not cerebellar Purkinje cells? And so, you know, I kept trying to get my friends who worked on dopaminergic neurons to go do that experiment to sort of tell me what was different about them? What put them at risk? Yeah, that is a super interesting question. And they all looked at me and said, Interesting idea, Jim, but, you know, I've got my own agenda. I've got my own set of questions. Why don't you go do that? I said, well, you know, I, I've never recorded from dopaminergic neurons. I mean, you, you've done this. You, you can do this easily. And, you know, they finally said, no, 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 no. And we, we just decided to go ahead and do it ourselves, to bite the bullet and go record from themselves. And it, it didn't take us very long before we identified really what I consider to be the smoking gun in, in this disease. And that is the dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra are autonomous pacemakers. They spike in the absence of synaptic input at a very regular rate, mm -hmm. uh, 2 to 10 hertz. Mm -hmm. They have very broad action potentials. So for anybody who's taken even rudimentary neurophysiology, you know that those broad action potentials are going to be dissipating all the ionic gradients that require energy in neurons. Yeah. That's what underlies electrical excitability. On top of that, they were fluxing large amounts of calcium. They, with every cycle of the pacemaking, they had, there was this very large cytosolic oscillation in calcium. It was uh, due to opening of, of L-type channels. Now, we were not the first ones to discover that. Other people had described that. I mean, we had, to tell you the truth, we weren't completely aware of it because we were focused on the stridum. We were working there, and we just, this was a little bit of a side project. I didn't have any funding to, to do this work. But calcium, we all know that while calcium is a good thing when there's a little bit of it, if you get too much calcium inside a cell, it can be a bad thing, right? There are all sorts of excitotoxicity stories that have been told, mostly within the context of ischemia and things like that. But, right. but it was very clear that calcium was a potentially um, causative agent you know, for, the, for these cells. It could put these cells at risk. So bottom line is that once we saw that, what we found, what we contributed initially to the field was that those L-type calcium channels were not necessary for the pacemaking. Previous work had really argued that they were. But that work was based upon, a, I think, a poor reading of the pharmacological literature and an understanding of how dihydropyridines, which antagonize L-type calcium channels, work. And so they were using the, those drugs at, at concentrations that were no longer selective for L-type calcium channels, to make a long story short.
So the bottom line here was that we found that L-type calcium channels were not necessary for the pacemaking, but they contributed to this big oscillation in cytosolic calcium. The question then was, why might that be potentially damaging? Well, the obvious thing was that it should create a metabolic burden on these cells because calcium is a very expensive ion to use for any kind of electrical activity because it has to be pumped out against a very steep electrochemical gradient and has to be sequestered in vesicles, all of which require a lot of ATP. Yeah. So we teamed up with a, a fellow who was a mitochondrial biologist um, and developed a transgenic mouse that had a, a sensor of mitochondrial redox status that was targeted to the matrix of mitochondria. So it gave us a little optical beacon for mitochondrial oxidant stress. That is how hard are the mitochondria are working. And what we found basically was that mitochondria in dopaminergic neurons that were fluxing calcium were working very hard all the time to keep the gradients in place, to pump that calcium out. And when you eliminated calcium entry into those cells, without stopping the pacemaker, uh -huh. that mitochondrial stress dropped. And we showed that that stress was a contributor to the vulnerability of those cells to toxins that were used to model Parkinson's disease. It also increased the impact of some genetic mutations associated with Parkinson's disease. And so we came out with this, this very public story saying, well, you know, the use of L-type calcium channels to support and make pacemaking robust is a potential contributor to pathogenesis in Parkinson's disease. Well, it turned out that L-type calcium channel antagonists are very commonly used by humans to treat hypertension. There's a very close relative of the L-type calcium channel in compactant neurons that's expressed in the heart and in vascular smooth muscle. And when you antagonize those channels, you relax vascular smooth muscle, you slow the heart down, and you lower blood pressure. So epidemiological studies were then done. I said, well, if there's a link between these L-type calcium channels and Parkinson's disease, if patients were treated for hypertension with dihydropyridines, but not beta blockers or ACE inhibitors, which are the other major strategies for, for treating hypertension, the risk of developing Parkinson's disease should be lowered. Well, there are three major studies that have been published since we first came out with this story. All of them show the same thing. That is that risk drops precipitously, 30 to sometimes 40%. If you're taking dihydropyridines for the treatment of hypertension, your risk of part developing Parkinson's disease drops. Wow. And it also looks as though even if you've been diagnosed and are on dihydropyridines, the progression of the disease slows. Wow. So based on that completely independent epidemiological data and the the basic science story that I told you, that is that dopaminergic neurons were different from cortical pyramidal cells or other neurons that weren't at risk mm -hmm. by their engagement of L-type calcium channels in this high mitochondrial oxidant stress. Based upon that, a phase two clinical trial was run in early stage Parkinson's patients a couple years ago, which show that the dihydropyridine with the highest affinity for the L-type calcium channel that's expressed in compactant neurons at high levels that underlies its pacemaking, which has a distinctive pore-forming subunit, that dihydropyridine with the highest affinity for that channel was safe mm -hmm. for use in Parkinson's patients. And then, based upon those results, NIH, since the, the drug, this drug is ratapine, is off-patent, the NIH took on the responsibility of running a efficacy trial to determine whether or not it would slow the progression of the disease. And that trial is, the, the kickoff for that clinical trial is uh, this Friday, uh, as a matter of fact. 
St. Louis. And so it's a five-year clinical trial. We'll know in five years whether isratapine treatment in early-stage Parkinson's disease slows the progression of the disease. So again, I think in a very short period of time, from 2005 to 2014, which is relatively yeah. short, we went from bench to bedside. And uh, I, I think that it's a great example of the importance of basic science in the effort to develop new treatments for disease. You have to understand what causes something mm -hmm. in order, I think, to uh, design effective treatments. Well, that sounds very interesting and very exciting. I feel like you've already mentioned kind of what you're going to talk about at Stanford, so we're just going to finish up here with a few rapid-fire questions. So we'll just ask you some quick questions and you can give us some quick answers. So uh, the first question we wanted to ask you is, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, what advice would you give to yourself? <laughs> that's <Tough one. laughs> uh, that a very tough question. I think the... What would I tell myself? Uh, I can't second guess. <laughs> I, the most important thing, because I actually get asked a slightly different question, which is how did you achieve what you, you've achieved? How did you become a chair? How did you become a full professor? How did you have a successful academic mm -hmm. career? I think the, the bottom line is the most important thing in science is to stay in love with the work. You know, you have to have a passion for what you do. You have to be excited about it. It has to get you up in the morning. It has to get your adrenaline flowing and, and get your dopamine flowing. <laughs> and you need to find a line of study that keeps you excited, that makes you want to work hard, makes you want to think about nothing else. Because that's the, the secret of success is staying enthusiastic and engaged and excited about your work. Great answer. On a lighter note, as I'm sure you know, the Ice Bucket Challenge that swept America this summer was very successful in raising both money and awareness for ALS research. If you had to come up with a similar challenge to raise money for Parkinson's, what activity would you most like to see your friends, family, and complete strangers doing to themselves or others? <laughs> so, it has to be painful and, and, and capable of being put on YouTube and being funny, <laughs> but not too funny, right? So, uh... Oh, that's a great question. I <laughs> hmm. It's a tough one, I know. I don't want to I don't want to tell you because if I come up with a good idea, I, I want to be able to push it and not have somebody else. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you can nominate someone else to answer this question for you. Oh, goodness. I mean, this is a, this is an incredible phenomenon, right? And, and uh, in, in ALS, the ice bucket really doesn't have so much to do with ALS. Yeah, it's just a, a relatively innocuous thing that that leads to funny YouTube videos. And because social media was a was a huge part of this. Oh, okay. So I, I would challenge people to sing their favorite song. Mm -hmm. huh. That, that's because I that's I, if I think about painful things. That would be something that would be very painful for me to do. <laughs> but let me think about. Oh. Well, we can put that challenge to June Ding. Uh, introduces you uh, at the start of the Yeah, I want to put it to June. <laughs> so, last but not least, um, if you had to work on another brain region other than the basal ganglia, uh, what would you work on? The greatest challenge facing the neuroscience community actually is not. Parkinson's disease, but Alzheimer's disease. Mm. And I 
I think understanding how Alzheimer's disease uh, and cortical degeneration progresses, what are the underlying mechanisms, is a, is a huge challenge. I mean, there are many more people with Alzheimer's disease. Parkinson's disease is number two, but it says for distant number two. Yeah. You know, I, I love puzzles. I learned very early on that the tissue that you work on is not particularly important. And truth is that my dissertation work and my first postdoc, because my work with Steve Katai was my second postdoc, was with somatosensory system. And I, I was studying pain signaling and uh, tactile perception. Uh -huh. And when I switched to the basal ganglia, I, I thought, well, the problems, the sort of fundamental problems are still the same. It's a different region of the brain. Right. But the basic problems, the things that I love to do, the, the solve puzzles, they're, they're essentially the same. So it doesn't really make so much difference what tissue I work on. So if I were going to move to another area, and actually I, I've thought a little bit about this, is I think that Alzheimer's disease is, is, a, is a tremendous challenge to the neuroscience community, and I would love to be able to make a contribution to that effort. Great, great. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us, Dr. Sumer. My pleasure. So uh, I want to thank the audience for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Michael Shadlin, a professor of neuroscience at Columbia University. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, David Lipton, and myself. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk, as well as our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, west.org.